Welcome to the Gather Houston podcast. We are a Christian community practicing the way of Jesus in all parts of life and for the good of all people. Thank you for joining us today. Well, we are now uh, in our final week on, on a, in kind of a four-week conversation on the practice of reimagining. Right, we talked about reimagining what the church could be. We talked about reimagining the Bible. Last week, we talked about reimagining heaven. And today, for the next 20-ish minutes, uh, we're going to talk about reimagining hell. Fun, right? Uh, maybe for you, uh, hell has been an, in, an integral part of your uh, religious experience, or at least your upbringing. That hell was just like the thing that got talked about. For me, uh, conversations about hell were so normalized in my childhood. So conversations about like divine torture and punishment forever. It was so normalized in my childhood that I actually kind of liked it when we talked about hell at church because it meant that I could cuss. It was the only time I could cuss. Right? I wasn't allowed to say hell no, but I could say no to hell. It was like that kind of thing, you know? It was cool to say hell as much as we wanted if we were in Sunday school talking about hell. And so I kind of liked it. That's how normalized it was. Just a part of my life that, of course, there's divine punishment forever. Right? In the simplest form, the idea of hell that was given to me was eternal divine punishment. Right? So that it's forever, eternal, that we're being punished for our wrong beliefs or our bad behavior or a combination of the two, and we're being punished by God, that God has made this decision on our behalf. And on top of all of that, kind of the cherry on top, is that everyone deserves hell. So we're kind of born at a place of deserving hell. So it's eternal torture and punishment, and everyone should get it. Whew. And if that's the kind of hell you were given the kind of belief system you were given like me, I think we need to do some reimagining. So here's what I'm hoping. Uh, I'm hoping we can reimagine hell by not imagining it at all. It needs to be minimized in our faith and practice. When someone asks you, what do you think about hell? I want you to be able to answer, I don't think about it. Here, here's what we're going to do today. We're, we're going to look at what the Bible says about hell, what the Bible actually says, right? Not what a weird Christian movie says, not what a youth minister says. What does the Bible say about hell? And maybe a little bit more specifically, what does Jesus say about hell? And then uh, what are the kind of the common views or, or ways that people think about hell? And then I'm going to offer just a couple things to consider. And so let's start today with what the Bible actually says about hell. Hint. Not very much. Uh, the word hell uh, is not in the Old Testament at all. So mo- most of the scriptures we're given that, that we have been taught, or this divine text, it doesn't talk about hell. The, the word hell is not in the Old Testament at all. The, the word that used to get sometimes translated as hell is the Hebrew word sheol. Now, we don't have slides because we're on video today, but I would put it up. It's S-H-E-O-L, sheol. You might see it translated now, if you read the Psalms especially, as the realm of the dead, or the grave, or the pit. But Sheol isn't the hell that we were given. Most importantly, because everyone in the Old Testament conscience, in in the Hebrew frame of reference, everyone goes to Sheol. It's the grave. It's a kind of shadowy existence. It's everyone's uh, next afterlife, kind of an afterlife maybe disembodied. It's kind of hard to tell when you read the Old Testament. 
it's kind of an underworld that people descend to, but everyone goes. And the evil people might go there faster because of their evil deeds, like they might die sooner. But everyone is headed to Sheol. It's the grave, the pit. So the, the Old Testament ha- has the realm of the dead, Sheol. It doesn't have hell like we know it. It just has this uh, kind of place where the dead go. And we see it in places like Psalm 30, verse 3. You, lo- you, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You brought me up from Sheol. You spared me from going down to the pit, to Sheol. Right? You spared me from the realm of the dead. Or really famously in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If, my, if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. You're, you're with me in my living and you're with me in my dying. In Sheol, God is there, which is definitely not the idea of hell that we were given. Right? This isn't divine torture or anything like that. So that, that's, the, that's the entire Old Testament framework for hell. It's just kind of a realm of the dead where everyone is. It's the grave. Everyone is going there, Sheol. That's the whole Old Testament. There's not very much there in terms of hell. And then in the New Testament, uh, what gets most often translated to hell is the Greek word Gehenna. Okay, and this is where we're really going to kind of get into it for a second. So just stay with me because it's fun. It's hell week. Uh, Okay, so the Greek word Gehenna in the New Testament gets translated as hell. And uh, Gehenna is a real place. It's a a historically located uh, place. It it is a place just outside of Jerusalem. It's known for being kind of the lowest place. It's a valley um, in Jerusalem, Gehenna. And uh, in the Old Testament, uh, because they lived in Jerusalem too, they referred to it as the Valley of Hinnom. And lots of stuff in the Bible happens in the Valley of Hinnom, like lots of stuff. Uh, it's not a very good place, Gehenna isn't. So in Jesus' time, it was the city uh, dump. And keep in mind that there is no plumbing system in ancient Jerusalem like we have. So it's like literally the city dump. And um, uh, it is also said in, it's said in the Bible that smoke is constantly rising. And it's because they're burning so much trash and human waste there. It's also the place uh, where if you didn't have the means, if you didn't have enough money to bury the dead properly, you would leave them in the valley of Hinnom and Gehenna, and they would ultimately be burned as well. So it's a trash dump that's getting lit on fire every night. Doesn't, it doesn't sound very good. And before all that, so before it was the city dump where people left their uh, human remains, before that, it, it was a place um, where child sacrifices were happening to the god Molech in the Valley of Hinnom. This is all in the Bible. It's all in there. I'm not making it up. It's not a good place. And the Old Testament even talks about it. In Jeremiah chapter 7, God warns that if God's people don't stop oppressing the foreigners, the widows, and enacting unnecessary violence, that God will send all of them to the Valley of Hinnom. He says, you're going to end up living in the Valley of Hinnom in Gehenna, if you don't stop oppressing people and enacting unnecessary violence. And so when Jesus, in, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, when he's rebuking the religious elite, he's saying, woe to you, you hypocrites. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, he's really rebuking them. And then he says in verse 33 of Matthew chapter 23, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? 
right? The word for hell there, just like it is throughout the book of Matthew, the word for hell is Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom, the place where all these bad things happen, the place where God warns if you're oppressed, if you continue to be oppressive, you'll have to live there. Right? Jesus says, how will you escape being sentenced to Gehenna? How will you escape the, this punishment for your selfish and self-righteous behavior? And none of these original listeners, these religious elite who are being rebuked by Jesus, none of them would have thought, wow, I think I'm being condemned to eternal conscious torment. They would have thought, Jesus is saying that my actions are going to lead to me having to take residence in the city dump where they burn the trash. And, and separate from Jesus playing off of this Old Testament motif, uh, you know, Gehenna is this real place that everyone knows about. You know, right north of us is the metro station. It's Wheeler Station. There's a lot of folks that uh, stay around here, a lot of houseless folks, and it's not a place of real flourishing. You've driven past it if you're a part of our community. Um, there's a lot of addiction. Uh, there's not a lot of flourishing. It's a really hard place. Uh, it sometimes feels really uh, unsafe if you're there at different parts of the day. It just It's not a uh, it's not a, a place of flourishing, right? It's a really difficult place. And um, so it, let's just say hypothetically, if I got invited to speak at River Oaks Country Club, I'm not being invited to speak there. No one wants to, no one wants to uh, listen to me there, but that's okay. But let's say hypothetically, I did get invited to speak at River Oaks Country Club and uh, I was speaking to Houston's most powerful and, and wealthy folks. And I got up in front of them and I rebuked them for oppressing the poor and immigrants in violent ways. And I said, if you keep oppressing the poor, you're going to end up living at Wheeler Station. No one would think I was saying, if you don't stop this, God's going to punish you forever. They would think I meant a this life natural consequence for oppressive behavior. Gehenna is used 14 times in the Gospels. 11 of them are in the book of Matthew, this word that gets translated as hell. And um, it is almost always, I think, a reference to the natural, to this life, natural consequences for not loving your neighbor. Jesus is saying, if you don't get it together, your life is going to end up in despair. And he's not making an afterlife claim. He's making a this life claim. Gehenna is a real place that everybody knows about. It's not a good place you want to go. Occasionally, there's also uh, the Greek word Hades in the, in the New Testament. That's a word that many of us are more familiar with than Gehenna. You're not really using Gehenna, probably. Um, and Hades is the, uh, the translation of the Hebrew word Sheol. So it's the same idea. Anytime you see Hades or think about Hades, because you're thinking about it all the time. Uh, you should think Sheol. You should think just realm of the dead, the place where everybody goes. This isn't eternal conscious torment. It's just a translation of that same Hebrew idea. And then I do want to acknowledge that in Revelation chapter 20, it does say uh, that at the final judgment, some will be thrown into a lake of fire. I read that too. Uh, but if you turn the page to Revelation chapter 21, it says in verse 4, God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Everything, 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 everything. So what does the Bible say about hell? Well, honestly, it doesn't say that much. 
The Old Testament has this idea of Sheol, this realm of the dead where everyone goes. The New Testament talks about Gehenna, this physical, real place where bad things happened, yes, but it doesn't seem necessarily like Jesus is condemning people to an eternity of torture. It's a natural consequence for oppressive actions. It's a present reality of suffering, but the Bible doesn't say that much about hell. So maybe if nothing else, we should reimagine hell as a very, very, very small part of our story. It needs to be minimized, I think. So the Bible doesn't say that much about hell. Now let's look at the three common views of hell. Um, These are kind of the views that people come away with, knowing that the Bible doesn't say that much. And each of these views, just for your reference, contain kind of a wide spectrum inside of them. But I'm just going to give you the big categories. So first is the traditional view of hell. So this, this view says that some people, or perhaps even a majority of people, will not be saved. That each person is judged once and for all at death and given either eternal life or eternal condemnation. And that eternal condemnation is a hell, and that hell is a place of endless conscious punishment for sin. This punishment is sometimes interpreted as a literal physical torment, and sometimes it's more metaphorical, a state of being, a spiritual separation from God. So that's traditional view. Everyone's judged. Everyone either gets eternal life and reward or eternal death and punishment separated from God forever. That's a traditional view of hell. Maybe that's the one you were given. And then there's an idea called conditional uh, immortality. Sometimes this is called annihilationism. And the big idea here is that the human soul, you and I, we are not naturally immortal. So it's not like um, we are automatically either spending eternal life or eternal death, that we're automatically either getting reward or punishment, right? We're, We're not all born going to live on forever, but rather immortality or eternal life is a gift from God. And those who do not receive that salvation from God, that gift from God, they aren't eternally tormented. They just don't have eternal life. They, they, don't get, uh, they don't get immortality. They don't receive eternity at all. They weren't eternal to start with. No, nothing is taken from them. They just don't receive the gift of eternal life, as it's sometimes called in the New Testament. That's conditional immortality. And then there is universalism or restorationism, sometimes called Universalism says that all people will eventually be saved. And there is a spectrum of belief on what eventually looks like, that God will restore all of creation to perfect harmony and union, that eternal punishment contradicts the love of God since God wills the salvation of all and has the power to overcome sin and evil, that God's love is is more powerful, is stronger than any human resistance. And if there is a hell, it is only a, a temporary Um, stop that ultimately leads to union and restoration, right? It's not eternal. That's universalism. So for me, I'll I'll give you what I think about it because I think that's only fair. For me, I don't see a good biblical or theological argument for eternal conscious torment, that, that there are people that God sends to be punished forever. The traditional view of hell. Uh, It's good for conversions. It helps with the revivals for sure. But I just don't see it in the Bible. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. I'm, I'm really confident that the original hearers in that time were not using that framework. That was not in their mind at all, eternal conscious torment. I don't see in the Bible. I don't see it from the early church leaders. So for me, 
I would call myself a hopeful universalist. I want everything and everyone to be restored. That's what I want. I don't think we need an out group in order to feel and be included by God. Right? There, there is no out group required. I am a very hopeful universalist that all things will be restored in some way at some time. But I also see uh, the real biblical argument for conditional immortality, this idea that, not, that we're not automatically eternal. Right? Even the most, the most famous verse in the Bible, uh, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That alone is an argument for conditional immortality. It seems like that verse says that if you believe in God, you won't perish, you won't die, but you'll have eternal life. And the converse of that is if you don't believe, you'll just, you'll die. You don't get the gift of eternal life. And that doesn't speak to hell at all, John 3.16. When it says perish, it doesn't, the word there doesn't mean tortured. It just means you die. So for me, uh, I am a hopeful universalist. I am hopeful. And I see that in the scriptures. God says, I'm going to make everything new. You read it in the book of Ephesians. It's just Paul saying over and over again, all things, all things, all things, all things, all things reconciled in Christ. So I'm a hopeful universalist, but I have this uh, respect and understanding. And um, uh, like I'm, I'm, I'm with, I understand conditional immortality. I don't, I don't, I'm struggling to say exactly what I mean there. I want to be a universalist, but I see conditional immortality in there. And uh, if that ends up being the real deal, that makes sense to me too. So what I'm trying to say is I don't really know, but I'm a hopeful universalist, right? So the Bible doesn't speak to the kind of hell that many of us were taught about. And I think there's definitely a strong argument against a large portion of the human population being tormented forever. I don't think that's in there. So if we're able to minimize hell as a part of our faith and practice, if we're able to reimagine hell as something that doesn't need to be imagined at all, then how do we move forward with that kind of faith that minimizes a punishment and reward system? How do we move forward? If that's, been the, if that's the only system we've been given, and I think largely we do that by finding a new motivation. You know, for many of us, hell was our primary motivator. We believed and behaved because we had a great deal of fear in regards to hell. And we told other people about the love and grace of God because we were afraid they would go to hell. Right? Hell was a driving force for many of our faiths. So if we're reimagining hell as this tiny part of the story, this thing that needs to be minimized, then I think we probably need a new motivator. And I want to propose to you today that you become solely motivated by love. Not fear, not, not manipulation, not religious anxiety, not shame, just purely and solely motivated by love. Let love be your only motivating factor. Love yourself enough to want healing and restoration now. Love the people around you enough. Love our world enough to take care of it to take care of those people. Apologize when you're wrong. Forgive freely. Be your brother's keeper. 
You know, if hell was your motivator, then the ends always justified the means. Right? We say, well, maybe we were a little manipulative and maybe we knew we were scaring people, but now they're not going to hell. So that's worth it. A little fear, a little manipulation. Of course it's worth it. They're not going to be tortured forever. But if love is the only motivator, the question isn't, are they saved from hell? But was I loving? Remove hell as any kind of motivating factor and replace it with love. We're not asking, are they going to hell? We're asking, how can I love my neighbor as I love myself? Let love be your only motivator. I think this is how we ultimately minimize hell, that we reimagine hell by not imagining it at all. We let love be our driving force. You know, brain science tells us that our childhood religious beliefs have been literally encoded into our brain. That those things you were first taught about God and about yourself and about heaven and about hell, that those things have moved from the outer layers of your neocortex into the deeper structures of your brain. They're like riding a bike. They have been encoded into you. And so you may have changed your thoughts about hell and some of your other religious beliefs, but those new thoughts you have, those new beliefs that you hold, they likely have not moved past the outer layers of your brain. They're not past the kind of periphery. They're still in that neocortex. And they haven't been encoded into your amygdala. Your brain, whether you like it or not, your brain has a reflex that associates incorrect belief and bad behavior with eternal damnation. If those earliest religious teachings, if they have been encoded in your brain, you have a reflex and you may not be able to do anything about it. You, you may not be able to totally eliminate that reflex that says incorrect belief, eternal damnation. Bad behavior, eternal damnation. You may not be able to eliminate that reflex. So just hear me today. If you're still a little bit afraid about hell, if you're still anxious about hell, you don't need to feel shame or confusion about that. Of course, you're still a little anxious about it. When you were just a child, somebody told you to be afraid, and now your body is doing what it's supposed to do. Even if you've changed your mind about this stuff, even if you don't believe that way, even if you would never say that's what you think, if you still feel afraid, if you still feel anxious, that makes total sense. It makes total sense. So instead of pushing against that, when those feelings of religious anxiety come up in you, those feelings of anxiety about hell, just tell your brain, thank you. Thank you for trying to keep me safe. You learned that I needed to be safe from this. Thank you for trying to keep me safe, but I don't need that anymore. Just acknowledge it. And listen, you you may not be able to rewire that reflex totally of fear and anxiety around the afterlife, but just hear me today. You You may not be able to totally rewire it, and I understand, but just hear me today. God is not mad at you. God is not disappointed in you. God has never needed to change their mind about you. God has never been separated from you. It's true in your living and it will be true in your dying. There is no eternal punishment waiting for you. 
And let me just be a little bit more specific today. For my LGBTQ plus friends and family members, loved ones, God is not mad at you. God is not disappointed in you. God has never needed to change their mind about you. God has never been separated from you. It's true in your living and it will be true in your dying. There is no eternal punishment waiting for you. For those of you who are doubting or are just done with a system that has caused you so much harm, hear me today. God is not mad at you. God is not disappointed in you. God has never needed to change their mind about you. God is not separated from you. There is no eternal punishment waiting for you. For those who have been called lost or backslidden, for those who have made bad decisions and who are living with the regret of it, those, for those who have hurt others and those who have been hurt, God is not mad at you. God is not disappointed in you. God has never needed to change their mind about you. God has never been separated from you. This is true in your living and it will be true in your dying. There is no eternal punishment waiting for you. Love has been the only motivator and mediator between you and God. Any separation between you and God is perception. It's never been reality. It's a projection of our learned insecurity, but it's not ultimate reality. God's movement towards you has only and ever been loving pursuit. It has, it has only been loving pursuit, and it will only and ever be loving pursuit. Gather, beloved, rejoice and be free. God is good now and forever in our living and in our dying. And so this is my prayer for us today. Release any anxiety, fear, or shame about your eternal destination. Union with God is your intended purpose and your inevitable reality. Praise God. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in Gather, check out our website at gatherhouston.org or visit us on Sunday at 10 a.m.